Welcome back to A People's Guide to Publishing. I'm Joe Beal, the founder and CEO of Microcosm Publishing and Distribution. I'm also the author of A People's Guide to Publishing, which distills what I've learned from selling millions of books over the past 25 years. I'm Ellie Blue. I'm the Editorial and Marketing Director here at Microcosm. We are an independent midlist publisher based in Portland, Oregon and Cleveland, Ohio. We have over 700 books, over 25 employees, and we make about 40 new books every year. And we distribute thousands of titles from other publishers. We started this podcast so that we can share what we've learned with newer publishers so that you can learn from our mistakes. Or maybe you just want to understand the publishing industry. Authors will frequently ask us why we can't pay them a 70% royalty, just like customers frequently ask why we can't just like reprint something that we're sold out of, or, you know, similarly, why we can't give zines away, or any number of other questions. Some of them, you know, like, are sound very reasonable if you don't understand, like, what the limitations on that are. And the those reasons are that health and survival under capitalism comes down to two slightly unrelated things. And those two things are profit and loss, which is usually called a PL, if you read um business sites or magazines and um and they throw that around like it's just something that people know but really what that is and they don't really explain it so it it's each project or undertaking it needs to bring in more revenue than it costs and that is like a fairly simple concept otherwise those costs have to be recovered elsewhere and that's like you know the nuts and bolts of it the part that they don't normally tell you is that you more or less know based on budgeting whether that will actually happen. And then the second part is cash flow, which is when your growth is paced so that you don't run out of money. And so you, because money is replenished, but it has sort of a rhythm to it, but sometimes your money is more staccato and sometimes your money is more legato and so you don't you and you need to know which and you know to plan based on what's actually happening and and so profit and loss is really like storytelling with data and so cash flow is making sure that you don't grow faster than you can afford to and both of these are things that I pay attention to on a daily basis, um, though it's surprisingly common that organizations don't have effective ways to measure them or understand the health of each one. And so our success results are flounders because of how closely these things are measured and paid attention to and with what frequency. So that's partly why this is such an important part of my job and why most of our policies are designed to ensure that both of these aspects remain healthy and don't need constant oversight because you want these things to be able to run on some amount of autopilot based on like standards and practices and like, you know, how stuff is structured. So, and you know, and like, this is the harder thing I think for some people to understand is that we could literally sell millions of books and still go out of business because a PL is out of alignment. And that happens all the time, you know, not to us, but it does happen, unfortunately. So we could grow faster similarly than our cash flow and our credit line would allow and go out of business because we couldn't borrow more money when we need to. Because when you're overextending yourself, nobody will loan you money, even if things would be fine because they can't trust that you are able to write that ship, you know? And so that's the sort of the greatest irony is that like, if you need money, you can't borrow money. If you don't need money, everybody wants to loan you money because you're such a sure bet, you know? And so you can be forced to cease to exist even if you're successful. And that's why like, real success and job security comes down to like managing and juggling PL and cash flow and keeping both of those things remaining healthy. So let's take a little closer look. Um, 
And, you know, again, profit and loss means you add up every bit of income related to a project and you subtract all the costs, which is like, that's the simple version. And, you know, this applies to the smallest aspects of a budget, like buying pens all the way up to like, you know, labor costs, inventory and real estate. It's like all operates on that same principle. And um, I think that every organization would do this in planning, preparation, execution, and review stages of a project, but they don't because the trouble is that most organizations prioritize growth and visible marks of success to such a degree that they're overvaluing the appearance of success over actually being successful. And this is for all kinds of reasons, but strangely the most common reason is because shareholders demand the appearance of like success and unbridled growth much more so than they you know need it to actually be successful or like slow down in the moment um so we're going to take a look at a sample here that should be helpful in understanding the specific contents of like what is actually involved you more or less know before a book comes out how many copies it's going to sell and you might ask the very obvious question how can you possibly know that but you know that based on what the comps sell which are the books that are from equitably sized publishers who have similar budgets with like authors of similar stature and you know similar amounts of like platform distribution and reach and all that so you kind of, and so you like sort of take three and you find the average, you know, is really like the best practice. Most people, again, take a very optimistic worldview as, which is, you know, not a bad thing, but when you're making a, a budget or a PNL, an optimistic worldview is actually a pretty bad idea because you're gonna forever be let down, you know? So you want to be a little more, you know, like have smaller expectations. And so what we do here is like we take like we know what the cover price is we know more or less what a book will sell and based on that we know probably how many ebooks it'll sell we know more or less how many returns we'll get we know how many will sell in stores versus on our website we know how much income we'll make from that based on discounts and you know what all those things cost us we know what and then based on that and based on the size of the book we know what the printing cost will be and then we know how much budget we have for things like production design editorial things like that and so we can work backwards until we can balance it so like you might notice that after everything you know we'll sell sixteen thousand four hundred and twenty one dollars worth of this book column g14 will give back six hundred and five dollars in returns we've paid four thousand three hundred and fifty three dollars in development which is like what we pay to make the book you know like that's what our costs are including you know everything from editorial to like the artwork to everything else and then we'll pay the author $1,630 in royalties for those. And then um, this is like three different royalty structures it's showing you here based on like what we could pay in various scenarios. And then that leaves $9,834. However, that doesn't include what we call the bottom line. So that's the part that's like our basic operating structures. So that's like, everybody's hourly wage that goes into like touching this book at any stage so that's like selling that's things like sales commissions that's things like you know like the cost of operating a warehouse so that um we found that the average of that is 48.76 percent goes to all that stuff so then you subtract that or i'm sorry 48.69 percent so you might see here that leaves us 0.07%, which means we make $11.23 on this book is the like likely outcome. 
but that's you know so we and we you know we may do better than that that might be but that's like what is what we know to be like a fairly safe bet you know because in you know in all likelihood we'll sell 800 copies the next year and you know and it'll keep kind of ticking down and we only have to pay those development costs once and so you know it'll kind of plane off but we know more or less that it will pencil out for us we so we we had authors that were like oh can we just split 50 50 on like the actual profits of the book and we had to be like oh you don't actually want that because that is in our favor not your favor we could show them that you know and how that affected things differently while there are you know aberrations when you do this for a while and you have some experience you more or less will know what will be successful or not at recouping which you know like just like making back like what it costs and we don't make big gambles like most of what we do is like a pretty measured consideration because we we don't want like it's better to do lots of cool books that we kind of all treat equally than it is to make some big risks and put less into other books because when you put less into it you kind of are going to get less out of it so it's better to be more democratic you know and and to like do more and so that's why we do all the little zines and the big zines and you know why most of the books are kind of in the 200 pages and below range well that's for all kinds of reasons but so you you know you this helps you to know what costs are reasonable and how to plan and project and then you can predict you know when and which things will go over budget with a little bit more experience and that's part of it too where you'll like essentially can you know like a pnl when done well and done honestly helps you to predict the future and then you can watch as like budgets go up when we had published previous books by this author they were previously published and we reissued them you know we would get the rights back from whoever did it and this was the first book she wrote from scratch so she said you know i'm a new york times best-selling author like can you give me you know a, a an advance comparable to what i get elsewhere and you know and so the pnl is similarly how you do that you know it's like you you don't want to just say sure no problem that sounds reasonable you want to be like can we actually afford to do that because that's the real question because it has to benefit everybody you know like and this is sort of another important principle is like we could go out of our way to accommodate others but we wouldn't last very long like this relationship has to be mutual you know so on the wayward writer pnl we can you know you can see similarly most of the details are pretty comparable and this was the the pre-publication one this was not this is not like to date the ones after this point will all be like the actual real takeaway data but this is i you know the one we made based on what our expectations were and the numbers that we had so you know like we anticipated this one selling considerably better like roughly triple what the others did and you know i mean it's like in the pocket like what we've actually sold is close and the other takeaway that i ran into when putting these together was that you know i i'm like conservative in my estimations on a couple fields but the thing that struck me the most was that in like g4 the actual cost per book has always been higher in reality that we get paid than what we estimate you know not by a lot but we tend to get like three percent more than the estimates which is kind of how you want to do it you know but so you know basically what this is figuring out is will we owe her more than five thousand dollars in royalties even despite the bigger advance and everything like g20 the net profit line is higher like we actually did better on this book than we did you know and by percentage you know that's not just like in dollars like it actually works out better like our 
and we, you know, we partly because she's more accomplished, she needed less in editorial. So like we just didn't have to put quite so much into that. But we had to like, you know, make it look respectable and you know, there were other costs. So a lot of it is we had all the tools that we needed to say, like, yes, this makes sense. Like this is good for everybody and it's like cool that we can go toe to toe in this case against you know her you know she was published by penguin random house and simon and schuster and hachette and i yeah she was published by mcmillan i i think she might have made the complete big five tour and decided after all of that that she was like i would rather work with you <laughs> and we were like oh that's flattering and cool mm -hmm. and i met her at a party across the street from my house like 20 years ago so there's you know kind of sometimes it's things like that where you know it works out anyway and i think it was like she had seen our books and you know like kind of knew what we were about and that helps too so like you have you know some degree of mutual respect in a relationship but again at the end of the day that's not enough like we have to be able to confidently be like yes we can in fact afford to pay you what you earn elsewhere so we did that and that worked out and that book will probably reprint this or within the next year yes ellie you have a question i do um i'm noticing on these pnls um and i've never asked this before i've always just kind of skimmed over it but um there's two sort of sections where it adds up gross profit bottom line net profit and microcosm profit and they come up with very different answers is that two different royalty methods or what what, what are those Yes, I explained on the previous one for those okay. paying attention. Um, the uh, this one, the top line is, or you know, the eighteen to twenty-one. That's on like our royalty structure. That's best for eighty-five percent of authors, and then the line uh, uh, twenty-three to twenty-nine. That's for authors that sell over forty thousand. That's in their best interest, and obviously, that's not many authors. And also, how do you calculate the break-even point? I haven't seen that on a PNL before. I think it's on all of them. So, um, but it's it. What it does is it just it adds our cost per unit, and so that it's basically breaking down. So, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I I skirted over a few bits of like boring jargon. So PPB might be the most unnecessary bit of publishing jargon, though I'm sure there are like many popular um, votes for what that should go to, but it stands for paper, printing, and binding. And I think this like harkens back to the 1800s when those would be done at like three separate facilities that you would like print your cover one place, you would buy your paper from another place, you would get your text printed at a third place, and then you have it bound at a fourth place. And this somehow like made sense, but now all that's like done in one facility. So, but they say, and they still use this like PPB a unit means like per book. And then PPB total means like the first print run or the print run that would be, you know, necessary to fulfill these sales. So what that, what that formula is doing is it's taking your freight bill and your, and your, printing binding and paper and it's saying how many copies would you have to sell at your steepest discount just to recover your print costs and your freight bill and that's um because you know once upon a time that was like that was the number we struggled with the most you know was those numbers because you know in a lot of cases the you know this is an outlier like most cases the books sell 2000 to 3000 in their lifetime and that's like high for the industry so we need to be able to look at it from you know the point of view of like when do we recover our costs and you know and so this is like and i think this goes back to an era before we were paying as much as we do now in editorial and advances and production it's a lot of it is to like get past conjecture like again the thing about any pnl is like you learn to understand what is reasonable to expect and when and you get to you know you you paint a conservative case so that you aren't surprised or disappointed and most of the like student pnls that i saw when you know when i was 
um, looking at this stuff with PSU is they would they would have like a cookbook that sold fifty thousand copies or something, and you're just like, that that's not that's like maybe in the seventies, like not today, you know. And you know, so you're just like you you want to give somebody a reasonable expectation, especially the author of like what's going to happen, you know. Um, and so, you know, you get getting back to the second point. In most cases, most organizations operate on borrowed money. That's just like how it works for whatever reason. And this creates sort of a different problem and a different illusion is that you can lose money on quite a few projects for a while because infinite spending just seems possible when you're operating on borrowed money. And it's like you blow up a balloon really, really big, and then you gradually let the air out. And then when all the air is gone, it feels very sudden that you can't breathe, but like it's been closing in on you for some time. And that's really, I mean, honestly, like when people panic and act badly because they didn't prevent it when it was preventable. So, you know, that's sort of, those are the sort of the two biggest aspects of my job for that reason is like, so we aren't ever in a panic situation. Like we normally have like a month or two of actual, like, you know, canary warning that like something is going to go wrong potentially in the future. But there's other considerations too, obviously. We have to keep more than 30 people working productively years into the future because that's how far forward publishing works. Um, so books that we acquire today, you know, they don't roll off a truck for two to three years. And so my other job with P&L is keeping enough projects active and nurturing so that we can maintain schedules and income on a consistent basis years into the future, as well as like maintaining all of your jobs and, you know, having those jobs, not just keep people busy, but like actually building towards long-term goals. Like that's the actual biggest job. And so, because, you know, it's really easy to keep people busy, it's harder to keep them busy in line with those goals. Um, and so the simplest example of this is like with the warehouse expansion and not just because it's like the most expensive set of budgets I've ever had to work with, but because it like in some ways simplifies it. So, you know, we can look at the costs and then we can break that into monthly costs. You know, that's like, pretty much the same you know and on a book pnl the largest costs are usually editing and printing and then followed distantly by design and production and then for a typical month in our general budget it's you know it's usually inventory labor royalties shipping health insurance building costs supplies taxes in that order you know roughly give or take some months up a little bit you know with others but in the case of the warehouse you know the costs are land real estate shelving construction increased inventory you know and that is you know those things alone are our average month of you know they're around four hundred thousand dollars just for that one project so we you know in that case the PNL works a little bit differently, but kind of similarly. So we look at what the additional storage will conservatively offer in terms of increased sales. And so I made a little uh, different kind of PNL here. This is a little bit of a fancier one. So um, this is called an uh, NPV, and that's it's the similar principle, but you're you're spanning it out over time. You know, so what you do is you say, like, these are the costs. These are, this is what today's interest rate is, like, as much as we know when this will be happening. And then we look at what we will pay per month and what we will benefit per month. And then this literally, it's like a magical tool where it takes all those numbers and there's literally a formula for this that's like built into everything. Like you can use this in sheets or in Excel or anything. You don't have to like write the formula yourself. And it will tell you if you're better off 
doing nothing or doing the project, you know? And it's like, cause it's basically like, am I better off just burying this money in a box in the ground and never talking about it again, or should I do this project? And that's, you know, um, and Ellie's friend who uh, went, who has an MBA, a master's of business administration, you know, I asked like, Ryan, does anybody actually use an NPV? And he's like, not really after they get out of college, they just kind of like, you know, everybody just kind of like wings it after that. But that's not to say that it's like any less valuable. It's just like, that's sort of the arrogance of, and you know, and it's like when it's not your own money and it's not your own risk, I think that's part of it too, to be honest. I think it's just like, who cares? Like if we fail, then I'll get another job, you know, is kind of like how people approach it. And so, um, but you know, for us, the stakes are a little different. Like it could, if we screw it up, like we could cease to exist. So like I wanted to do it right. And I want, you know, especially like when we were looking at building and the costs kept going up that I like wanted to figure out like at what point is this not worth it? Like at what point does it fall apart and we should figure out something else, you know? So um, that's essentially how that works. Um, I conservatively assumed that we would increase inventory by about 60% across five years i assumed that it, the warehouse would be 20 percent more efficient it'll probably be more efficient than that but that was like a safe number i assume you know like interest rates have been skyrocketing recently like if we borrow it's at like 9.5 percent but i assumed that like at some point we would be able to get 6.5 percent and that's like maybe a little high maybe that should be like 5.5 but so that's you know, assuming payments across five years and then after expenses, like the benefit to us is still $2,637.18 per month or like a total value of $158,230. So that's like pretty great, you know, like that's that mean that's like a complete green light on a project. And so that, you know, I was not expecting it to be that, you know, I thought we would be like closer to zero, honestly. But um, that means that even at those relatively small conservative numbers, like we would have a lot of leverage by adding more space. Ellie. Maybe I'm misreading this uh, spreadsheet, but doesn't, it looks like the value, value per month is lower than the cost per month. Yeah, well, that's the value per month is after the cost per month. Oh, see, cool. this is the beauty of NPV is like you don't. Well, it does all that for you. Like you literally, the formula is is hilariously self-contained. So, um, like you just have to say like this is what it'll cost me by month, and this is what I'll benefit by month, and then it spits out those numbers. But um, yeah, that was. I know, I guess that is a little bit confusing because normally we would show our math a little more if I made this formula myself. Um, but so, you know, then you get into bigger questions where you're like, okay, like with that amount of leverage, like what kind of retail accounts could we entice to begin ordering from us? Like who would work with us that doesn't work with us now? Like, and what kind of books are they interested in, you know? And that's, you know, like we've done that with a number of things. Um, and then, you know, what are the seeds of where, where we can recognize that and see where it's going? So like, you know, the really weird thing of the last two to three years is like we started to see orders from wedding venues, which is not ever something I thought about having like a gift store. <laughs> but that seemed like a viable set of retailers even though it's like not my passion, but like other stores would order those titles as well. And like, we could get like edgier ones. And, you know, we didn't have room a year ago because we needed to be like aggressively using space for books about houseplants and Wicca. So like we couldn't be bringing in stuff like that. But um, so then, you know, I created the math to figure out the opportunity costs for using space. And then similarly, when we buy a book, we have to look at all the costs, you know, the cost of inventory, the cost of data, the cost of fulfillment, cost of reputation, cost of space, cost of what we could have otherwise used that money and space for, you know, like opportunity cost. And then 
you know, that one too, in most cases, it pencils out really nicely. Like we make minimal inventory investments and then we reorder as we see movement. The computer handles all that pretty conservatively um, and we build upwards slowly. And then this mitigates risk and increases opportunity. So, you know, like by having just like uh, lots of different stuff, we can bring in books that are like cooler books and like good for like people understanding like who we are and what we care about while balancing that against books that like just sell hand over fist, you know. And that's why we've stayed healthy and could balance and, you know, finance growth from cash flow, even like when sales doubled is because like we could kind of make that pivot really easily rather than having to like totally restructure everything about like how we do everything. Um, but the problem be became that like there was no way that a person could accurately oversee, you know, I figured out that it's like 9.3 million computations are required to manage the 30,000 titles in our catalog. So that's like, just that it would be impossible for a person to do that. So the, now the database handles that. And to, to its credit, like it made very few bad investments, you know, like we sold zero copies of the Snowpiercer movie tie-in graphic novel, but you know, there's very few zeros comparatively out of the number of books that we have, so. You know, and you win some, you lose some too as part of it. But so if we buy too many of something, even if it seems like a really low hanging fruit, the numbers bear it out that it's almost better to lose sales than it is to have more copies on the shelf. And that's really confusing. Yes, Ellie, again. Uh, Abby included the Snowpiercer book in our July warehouse sale and we've already sold five copies. Well, dang. So I guess... Um, None prior to the July warehouse sale. Great work. Oh, I see we have a celebration occurring live. Um, and so it's, you know, they, and that, you know, that was a book that we bought, I don't know, probably two years ago, maybe more. Like, and it, you know, it was a book where like, it really felt like a time where we could sell anything. And then, you know, you find out that in fact, there are limits to everything and you can't just sell a book because it had a movie that came out, you know, 10 years ago or more, you know, and it has a graphic novel reboot now. So, um, but on this cost of books on shelves, this is, I feel like the thing is totally confusing. So I made a very straightforward and simple spreadsheet as much as it could be done. Um, and, there are very, because, you know, and it's because we're primarily a distributor, our margin is, you know, the 18% usually between what we buy the books from and the 40 or more percent that the store needs. So like we really get that 18% in most cases. So that's, and out of that 18%, we have to pay essentially everything out of you know and that and but the wildest part of it is that the greatest cost is that we have is the unsold copies of those books like that actually costs us more than all of our other operating costs because at least on the sold copies we're like recouping on those copies and paying everybody's ability to do their jobs Whereas the unsold copies on the shelf are the most expensive, you know. And so um, the example I pulled was um, Cinderella Liberator. Like it was a book, you know, it's by Rebecca Solnit. It seemed like it would be a really cool book. Um, it was, however, her first children's book. And, you know, it was, you know, it probably did okay first. And But we have sold eight copies to date. We have eight copies on the shelf. Um, this is line five on the spreadsheet, if you are a person of my ability with eyesight. Um, and so you can see in column I, we make $1.87 on each copy sold after expenses. But because we have eight copies on the shelf, like this book is at a net loss of $21.26. And that's like taking all of our revenues and subtracting all of our you know, expenses. And like, you know, and because we have, 
you know, 30,000 titles, if we lost $20 on each one, like we wouldn't exist anymore. So that's the other part where we have to like ration it so tightly, you know, is because we really need things to come out close to zero in most every case. So it's not even like we're trying to get ahead. It's, it's like we're trying not to lose money on these books. And, you know, and so that's why, well, and then, so I worked with like the receiving departments and I was like, what kind of quantities would you prefer? And actually both departments said I would prefer smaller quantities of a wider range of titles at a time. And I was like, oh, great. That's easy because then that costs us less money. And, you know, it's like, we're going to run into fewer surprises if things change, you know? And, um, and so that, is and you know there's some other like working examples there like you can see on remainders like if we buy even a lot of something we can we don't even need to sell very many to recoup just because our margin is so much bigger and then similarly like you know we can sell you know 1400 copies out of 3000 of a published book and then we can sell the remaining 1600 over years and that pencils out okay you know like we can still you know make all those numbers work and so this was my 2020 and 2021 project to like make sure what seemed to be correct was actually what was happening and then you know which is like creating the formulas for like our operating costs minus all this and like how that all would work in practice a lot of that stuff can be relatively automated you know like that's why we just need to not have like colossal screw ups. So that's why it's like really helpful if you're like, is this working as intended? Like, I don't, it doesn't appear that way to me. And then like, I can troubleshoot it, you know, if you think something is not quite right. Um, and, you know, and this is similarly why it's sometimes better to lose sales than it is to have copies on the shelf as much as that is baffling. But the important thing is like each department's actions, I mean, sometimes like literally one person can have an outsized effect on the success or failure of an individual book, you know, especially if it's someone in sales or marketing because they just like that book or more importantly, almost understand the book well enough to talk about it clearly and succinctly. And so, you know, if you're you're just simply better at explaining a book to readers or sharing infectious enthusiasm, and then if you like it and if you understand it, and then that compounds because you know we have you know our reach is somewhere around eighty nine thousand customers, so then you know they're not all going to get it, but like you know more of them than would usually, and so that's why that can have an outsized effect or you know it's similarly if like if we use too much meaningless language then like we're not credible or it's like kind of unclear what it is and who it's for and i swear like that's the most important part of publishing is like what is the value proposition who is that book for why do they care about it? If you can like spell all those things out in the title and on the cover, like that's all you need to do, you know, then you just need to like actually make it available. So, and tell people that it exists. So, um, and then as Ellie foreshadowed somewhat ominously, um, in situations where we have thoroughly too many copies of something, we made super packs. Um, this was something we innovated about 18 years ago, give or take. I can't remember exactly. Maybe more, probably more than that. And that was the the first ones were literally like developed around things where like, here are the things we can't sell. Please buy them at a super discount, you know? And then I think it was called like too many of this or something. And the, they all sold out, you know? <laughs> it was like kind of incredible. I think the first one we had 11 copies and... It was like within two months we sold them all. So that was like, you know, it was 11 copies of all of the books, you know, so that was fantastic. Um, and then, but the reason that works is like we can repackage contents of existing inventory and simultaneously get rid of overstock while we mitigate losses on titles that never recouped. So like we can make money back on books that are in the hole while we get books 
out of here that simply we have too many of and that's sort of the beauty of it so like in the july super pack we sh there's like about half a dozen books that we made our money back on but we have too many copies and then but you know riot woman is at a loss so that's the one where we put all the money into yes Ellie. i have an anonymous question to share um we have a worker who believes that the specific title of ours that doesn't sell very well if it had a different cover that it would sell much better is this the kind of tool that we could use to make a determination like that we could yeah yeah uh, the super pack would be a great way of doing that and i mean and i've tried to figure out a legal way to do this with our with like books that we don't publish for years because like there are like some copyright concerns if you are like repackaging somebody else's stuff but you know like we can probably figure out a way to do it, like maybe like a, a dust jacket with like holes around the title or something like that. You know, like there's there's ways, you know. But yeah, I, I this is something that I have long tried to figure out books with bad covers or bad titles that like we can hopefully fix. Yes, love those ideas. Send them anonymously or not, you know. Um, but speaking of Riot Women, we're gonna take a closer look at that one um and see what happened there because that is um you know as you saw in the previous examples like a typical book it recoups and breaks even around 1200 copies sold um but you know that doesn't always happen um and this one was kind of staggering what happened here so um as you can see, we initially sold 1,235 total copies, 747 of which were returned, and we sold 29 eBooks. And so the total sales minus the returns, which were more than half, I will remind you, can't say that one enough times, minus the development is a negative number, and then we have a negative gross. And then on top of that, we have a negative bottom line. And so our total losses on this book are um, $15,885.87. So that like really hurts. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but we'll go through the, the, the top line ones. So we paid about $4,800 for printing, and we paid about like $650 in other expenses. And then, um, but we paid about $10,000 in employee staff time for this book, mostly in editorial. It was just dragged out over years and a series of disasters and revisions. Um, that also includes things like packing, shipping, selling, you know, processing returns, communicating, you know, just like all the necessary stuff that goes into any book and then shelving and taking apart and shipping and reshelving but a lot and, and it includes opportunity costs like the stuff we could have been doing instead of getting like mired in this book um but a lot of that was because the author didn't write the book that we agreed upon and then got a positive reception in a series of writing groups that the book should be a memoir so she kept having trouble like focusing on the premise and just writing a memoir and you know so this just became costly um the book was supposed to be about and you know and, and like is about how riot girl values germinate into adult feminism and like that would you know would be a popular and well-received book um they're a significant portion of the costs are you know things that we didn't really have as much control over um, like how it's perceived, like um, as Christine pointed out in our, our sales review meeting for that season, the fact that we did two books about women in punk within a four month period seemed to confuse stores because they just thought one, either one was enough or they were confused to think they were the same book. And so they went with the other one, which like sold and sells very well. So that's, you know, somewhat baffling. But, um, you know, so that's, there's like kind of a sticky morass of like mired stuff in there. Um, and so we have 
variety of problems. Um, and, you know, and I, and I, but a lot of it was that in the end, the author didn't support the book, you know, that, you know, because I think she didn't feel as enthusiastic about it after going back to like what it was supposed to be. So lots of stuff going on there. Um, but we can recover our losses in the way we talked about with our super packs because this, and, you know, when we have a Kickstarter coming out for her new book um, next month, maybe, maybe this month. And then, so we'll have copies of this book in that as well. So then we can like sort of recoup on this book that way too. And, you know, I would have printed fewer if, you know, but the enthusiastic response for initially was sufficient that I was like, oh, this could actually be like a book that does well for us, but that wasn't how it shook out. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of can't know, if people are enthusiastic, you kind of can't know if that enthusiasm will hold or wane. We have some questions in the comments. Um, Abby asks, does this factor into decision-making for future similar titles or future titles from that author, if at all? A very timely question. Whew. Um, well, you know, it's like it definitely raises your blood pressure and your cackles. But I mean, you know, you you like you just do it better the next time or you make more informed decisions. It's not like, you know, like a, tr a more traditional publisher would just look at the the PL and be like, oh, the last the author's last book sold 800 copies. Like, why would we work with them? But like we will look at it more based around the book's premise. And like if this, if, you know, if this was like riot woman 2 like we probably wouldn't publish it but if it was like a book about something else or like or if it could like solve the deficiencies that this book suffered you know like that's really the question and that's like really the goal and so that's like really what we strive or you know in some cases like it's our fault and we just printed too many and that's totally solvable you know so like we can normally fix it we can fix anything kind of in-house usually and sometimes fixing it is like okay the problem was this person's attitude or like the way that they approach this project you know like that is sometimes unfortunately or like it's just not a good fit you know so um yeah so that's the crux of it um all right so and you know this is like kind of i guess how yeah we like most publishers would just remainder everything that's left but like i don't know if we're smarter or like more stubborn or not as bright or what but like that's how we sort of like stumbled into creating our own system but then it's also like the humiliation of remaindering your own books is that you have to like walk around and say like oh can i will you give me a quarter a piece like will you give me 50 cents you know and it's just not like it's better to just like start moving them out you know and um, in many ways, like giving them away sometimes. We're going to move this one into super packs. And, you know, it's not like super bad, the results. Um, Even books that totally flopped, like, will be sometimes very popular in super packs. <laughs> Go figure, you know, <laughs> new cover time kind of thing. Like a lot of books that like flopped, like they did work out because of things like that, where we just we have other avenues, you know, that like not are not available to everybody and um, you know we recovered our money on two dozen other books that failed to recoup in 27 years so we have on average less than one a year that doesn't recoup so that's like i don't know pretty good math i feel like especially now that we're doing like 30 or 40 a year sometimes so and now we're going to look um lastly at our most uh positive outcome which is unfuck your brain which we knew would be one of our or i knew would be one of our bigger books i was fought a little bit on this at the time because the author submitted a powerpoint uh presentation um and you know ellie was like what this and i was like make it work somehow please and uh it worked out but the reasons were pretty basic. Like the author had credentials, original viewpoints, a gift for summary, experience, knowledge, like her own, you know, her own point of view. Like it wasn't just like rehashing other stuff, but it was something that she could capably do more succinctly than other people. Um, the reception was immediately positive. Our distributor at the time said, this could be really big for you. And, you know, like 
we knew that by that point, but it was nice to hear that they could see that, you know, that's like part of it too, is that like we would have support. Um, when we went to print, we had garnered exactly two reviews, uh, one of them scathingly negative and one of them like a basic summary of the book. Um, author did not have a big fan base. Oh, well, okay, well, I guess that's true. She had many zines, but she had no platform. She had no, like, we acquired this book when she had nothing, like she had nothing in print, like she had actually been turned down by quite a few publishers. And so, um, it, and so she was kind of surprised how easy it was for us to take it. But point being, all of the, um, the zine, yeah, the, we, we, but we built that fan base, I guess is the thing, like with the zines and like that was all our, something we developed after we acquired the book, you know, and that was because she was like game for that. And so um, a college newspaper said that the book was terrible. The author was trying to sound cool and um, they recommended not buying the book. The other one was basically like, this is a book about mental health that like summarizes all of the basic aspects. And you're like, wow, that's, they really make this stuff sound boring. Um, but so instead, um, and you know, this kind of moved us away from publicity as a strategy because it had just like, we spent a bunch of money on that and like the trades all ignored us. They didn't like talk about this book until after it had come out. And then they talked about it like they had always been supportive of it. Um, so instead we launched a Kickstarter campaign um, just as Ellie and I were going on tour. We do Kickstarter projects, not as a form of fundraising, um, but as a way of reaching an audience. And I think that is the major reason this book was quote unquote discovered or buzzed or whatever, you know, modern language you would want to put on it. Um, typically we pre-sell 300 copies of a book on a Kickstarter. Um, and then we discovered that a lot of people were finding out about our new books that way. And then so when we didn't do a book on Kickstarter, they would come and be like, oh, how have I, why didn't I ever hear about this one? And then so we realized it was more important. And so a lot of this is it works like a funnel where you have like a wide top and then it narrows as you go down. And so what that's doing is, you know, we're saying like, here, people, this is, we are microcosm and we make books and you can learn about us this way. And so you might be interested in other books that we make. And that is, that's like what is called the funnel. And so, you know, this way, this is the real value of Kickstarter. It's not about fundraising. It's not about anything other than like introducing people to like our platform. And that is like, you know, as opposed to Amazon or as opposed to wherever else, because the beauty of Kickstarter is they don't like stay and live on Kickstarter. They come to you and they have a relationship with you rather than, you know, or in addition to Kickstarter. Um, and so that, you know, and we really plan those around like when the author can be involved in the promotion and what projects like we sort of know will be popular on Kickstarter and Kickstarter advises us on that. Um, and really though, the number one driving factor is like readers, emotional investment in the author and their work like that really above all is what drives people on Kickstarter. And then, you know, like obviously when they get the books, they have to like the books if they're going to keep buying books from us. But prior to that point, they're like, oh, I love, well, now they say I love Faith Harper, but at the time they were like, who is Faith Harper? You know, so this has been really like how we've structured our plan and that's worked really well. So we really just fund like 30% of the actual costs of the total book. Like we don't actually try to fund publication because that is way too hard on blood pressure and it like is way too stressful and it takes so much time away from like actually doing more important things because again, this isn't like a primary fundraiser. This is like a way to introduce new people to microcosm. So, you know, I've often joked where I'm like, oh, the goal should be $1 for this next project, but like, you don't want to go too low because then, you know, it uh, it's like, it doesn't make sense. So, um, but with Unfuck Your Brain, it was something like 1700 people discovered us through that. And then like a lot of them are, our continued backers and supporters and customers, you know? So 
And the other major advantage is then we don't have to compete for shelf space against every other publisher on the planet who tends to fight for the exact same shelves in the exact same stores on the exact same subject categories. We can just go over here and do our own thing and bring in new people to read books who maybe didn't even read books. And that's been the number one thing that, um, you know, we have found over and over and over again is that like, we aren't competing with the bookstores. We're adding this in addition to the bookstores. And so um, pre-orders in the bookstore channel for Unfuck Your Brain were about 2,000 copies in 2017, which compared to about 1,000 for our typical book. Um, so we increased the print run from 3,000 to 5,000 to 7,000. And by the time the first printing arrived, we had sold every copy. Uh, we began running into payment problems and billing discrepancies with our distributor. And we lost a lot of sales through that process. Um, and eventually, like, we ended up severing that relationship as a result of that, which was unfortunate because they, like, saw the value of this book. But um, we realized that it would be more economical to provide all of the same services that the distributor does. Thank you, Christine. That was, you were the first one to really push that. Um, and you were right, maybe more importantly. <laughs> and so... Um, and the total lifetime expenses over seven years on this title are over $444,000, which is kind of wild. Um, and so we did have to do significant rewrites, but it wasn't anywhere near as expensive as Riot Woman. Um, and a lot of it is just because it just keeps selling. You know, we sold so many foreign rights. You know, we're, I, I think we're, I think we're going to cross 40 different languages and countries that it's licensed to this year. You know, that's just like completely wild. Um, it was the number four book in Italy earlier this year, which like baffling, you know, how that's even possible. Um, and we sold a lot of eBooks too. And so you can see like total revenues, total costs, total, you know, like even all told, this is a book where like we made $232,000 for, you know, so like those, this is the kind of book where like we're paying for all those things that are at a loss, you know, and this is obviously like across seven years. So it's not exactly, you know, like we didn't get all this money at once. That's like over a significant period of time. And um, so that's like how, and then, you know, things like that also help when we're like behind on paying our bills and things like that. So um, we've sold about 5.51 million copies to date, um, the majority in audiobooks, but we have sold over 200,000 in print, and that keeps going. And we continue to print 15,000 at a time. Anybody that works in Cleveland can probably tell you, and sell them briskly seven years later. It actually picked up in the last few years, which is kind of wild. Um, and, you know, there's kind of no end in sight. So we knew this would be a successful title from day one, but we didn't know it would be this successful. Like that was really the surprising part. Um, but still, again, if we had managed the PNL differently, we could have lost millions of dollars through mismanagement, you know, because a lot of times the instinct is like when you have a success is you build it up, you know, you, you just put a lot of money into publicity and marketing and, you know, editorial and, you know, like production values and like you make it so that, you're just like bleeding a little bit with every copy. And so, you know, despite the fact that, you know, everybody in, you know, yeah, I guess we could go back to like all of the trade reviewers ignored this book. They like did not even mention it happening at the time. Blackstone, they hired a, a Hollywood influencer to promote when Unfuck Your Boundaries came out on audiobook. And it did not move the needle at all. Like, I mean, it's cool to like see her promoting the book and like talking about the book, but like it did not sell any more than Intimacy did or, you know, other comparable books in audio. So that, or in, you know, paper, like it's pretty comparable in terms of like the sales of those against her other books, you know, so um, that's like, you know, I feel like that's like a pretty interesting case study because we have, same author quality, you know, like the reviews of the book really are the thing that 
make other people go out and get it because they're like, oh, my friend liked this book or all the people that wrote about it liked this book. So like, it must be a good book, you know? Um, and that, I mean, again, most common mistake is just like spending too much money or printing too many or, you know, just like acting like you don't have a budget. So um, not a sprint, but a marathon. Um, I think let's skip everyday herbal tea making, which is, I'll, I'll go through it really fast. If you want to show it, we can do the very brisk version. Um, this is, I guess, yeah, let's do it actually quickly, Ellie. Um, so this is like a very middle of the road title, like we expected it to be a middle of the road title, and it will be. Um, our total costs were $5,578.62. Um, we didn't really expect it to sell more than 1200 in advance. And all told, it sold 1268 <laughs> in its first three months. So that's like, wow, oh, you know, we're off, we're, we underestimated by less than 5%, you know, so that's great. Um, and then we shipped about 300 more since then. So like we're right in the pocket, total income, $5,705.28. So like we've recouped, we're going to sell probably half of that through the rest of the year. And then we'll probably sell like a pretty steady amount year over year moving forward. And we don't have further costs other than like royalties and printing. So like, that's a pretty good, like we don't need this book to have big sales spikes. We just need like people to continue caring about tea, you know? Um, and this is what's called like a mid-list seller where you can just kind of like effortlessly maintain it, you know? Um, there's few surprises and that's good because surprises are usually bad, you know, believe it or not. Um, Unfuck Your Brain is truly an aberration in that way. Um, the thing we learned most from the past 10 years aside from the need for frequent redirecting an author is that like editorial costs do not create more value beyond a certain point. Like if you have too little editorial, the book doesn't have credibility and it like reads kind of painfully and it's like not really pleasurable or pleasant to read. But if you spend too much on editorial, it doesn't actually improve any of those things beyond a point. So like, we have like a, a like acceptable level of typos and you know things that like we've kind of calculated into that because the weirdest thing is that like you would think that and a lot of people that read the books and complain about the books like think that we would do better if we like were more thorough with that but it when we've we've done it both ways and it doesn't actually sell more short term or long term or do more thorough editorial so that's like another interesting experiment we've done as well. Um, it's really like the book's central premise and the reader's emotional relationship to the author that is like what creates the sales, you know? So there is that and there will kind of always be that as the bottom line of like why people love a book or not. Um, so, you know, we safely focus on books where we have an audience that we know how to reach with our existing network's reputation and credibility. Um, and I hope that like with each of these examples, it could help you brainstorm solutions that are practical, cost less than they bring in, and don't carry disproportionate risk. So like thinking about your job in this way, you can bring ideas up. You know, most like big ideas, they don't really pencil out. They carry significant risk and they usually bomb. But this isn't to say that you shouldn't bring up big ideas because not all big ideas are expensive and not all big ideas are bad. So most can be workshopped into workable ideas. And, you know, most importantly, some big ideas quietly germinate into like a perfectly formed idea. So, or they're perfectly formed already. So like, you know, how can we do something else that is similar to what we already do? How can we apply an existing successful process to another book or another area of our operation? Um, and then PLs apply to every department every day, all the time. You know, when warehouse construction was going to go over, we had to look at it that and realize that every book would then be sold at a loss. So we had to create a new plan. And, you know, it's the same reason we can't knowingly spend more on production or editorial on each book, because it would mean that it would make more sense not to publish the book because every copy would be sold at a loss. And so putting too much labor into any department means that we have to increase the output of that department over a specified period of time, 
or the rest of the staff is literally paying for it. So conversely, as long as we're buying the right new titles, the only limits on them needs to be based on not growing faster than we can fund it or have a place to put them. So rather than like a per project or a per week budget, we really need to look at it as like, will this pay for itself before we run out of money? You know, So we only need to be buying the right books, meaning that the books that make sense to stores that order from us. Um, and when a company goes bankrupt or closes down an aspect of its operation, it's almost always because the PNL doesn't add up, you know. Um, and there's more advanced ways, like we talked about with net present value, and you know you can yield better results than doing nothing. That's the goal. Um, it can feel silly, but like it's often the best baseline comparison. Um, and then having these conversations with the person that you report to, you can understand the multitude of considerations and like how these systems are built and why some things work and other changes would create too many problems for too many people. And those are the sort of the other side of the considerations. So like when I get lost and I start to worry and I'm like, oh no, what's like, is everything okay? Like I step back and I get organized. So I go back to the plan and I say like, is this working? Like has the budget gotten out of control? You know, is this going to cost us more than we can risk or afford? And then I make changes and then get it back on budget or on schedule if that needs to be done. Usually it's just like, I need to immerse myself in the materials to see that everything is actually fine. And, you know, I'm, so I'm usually not fixing anything in the moment. Um, and I'll, and almost more importantly, like it makes me feel better to like remedy that through like looking at it and understanding that things are actually okay because I can see where things are working. So profit and loss is a tool and it's useful because it helps you to tell a story with data. You can predict the story, you can see what actually happens in practice, and then you can use it to tell a more accurate story in the future which you know doesn't mean cutting off the author necessarily. It means like making better choices around working with that author. So you can only share the best information that you have at any given time. So it's important to update that information and what is available to you while using it to the best of your ability. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, this I feel like this is the most largest audience for a PNL presentation in the history of PNL presentations. So thank you. Thanks for joining us once again. Please send your questions to podcast at microcosmpublishing.com so we can answer them on future episodes. And please give us five stars on iTunes and everywhere else that podcasts are reviewed. You can find us on the internet at microcosm.pub. On Twitter at microcosm. On Facebook at microcosm publishing. On Instagram at microcosm underscore pub. And here in Portland, Oregon on North Williams Avenue. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week.